Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. It's Tuesday, June the 28th. We are almost through June, folks. Can you believe it? Year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll right along. And boy, do we got a busy one for you today. Joe Zemanski, our really good friend, elections expert. He works over at elections-daily.com with our good friends over there. Gaudy Man, going to update all the stuff that's been going on in the primaries. Look ahead a little bit. Look back a little bit. What's going on in a very busy and tumultuous election season. Kind of recap the last couple of weeks. Some things you might have missed. Some things that we haven't covered yet on Herd Tell because there's been so much more going on. Joe Zemanski on the program today. Also, uh, one of our principles here on Herd Tell about turning down the noise of the news cycle. Things do not happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. Our good friend Eric Garcia did a Twitter thread about some of the sequences that got us to where we are at with the Supreme Court right now. We'll touch into that. A horrible story out of San Antonio, Texas, a place I know well and love very much. But this story is shockingly bad. The largest mass casualty incident ever for that city, uh, one of the fastest growing cities in America. Did you know San Antonio, Texas is now a top 10 population city in America? A lot of people don't realize it. We'll go down to San Antonio. Uh, also on the program today, a great story to end on a happy note. Uh, two Americans went over to the Isle of Skye in the UK to get married. The airlines lost them for three days and then lost all their luggage and the locals came to the rescue. Great story to end the program on. But let's start back here at home and let's start a little big picture before we dig in to the issues of the day. Yesterday we talked about abortion a little bit. Uh, today we're going to be talking politics. Um, there's a very old saying that with uh, res- freedom comes responsibility. The inverse of that works as well. We have a rash in our society, especially our culture and political discourse right now, of people who don't want to take any responsibility for their freedoms. Oh, they want the freedom to say what they want and do what they want and all that, but they want, really, they want freedom from the consequences of those things. They don't want to live up to what those things cause. I want to pull to your remembrance, or maybe you've never heard it, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, was speaking uh, to his National Party's convention. And he said this. Now, this is a man who, when I think about leadership, I go to him frequently. Of course, he had a long military career before he was president. He led the Allied war effort to win World War II, especially things like D-Day, like the campaigns in Europe. He had to keep a very fractious alliance of us and our allies together to get that done. Um, but he said this, and he's told this story in a couple other settings. I'm just pulling it from this one. But speaking to the uh, Republican National Committee in 1956, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, quote, as long as I'm back in my military life for a second, I should like to observe one thing about leadership that one of the greats have said, Napoleon, he said, the great leader, the genius in leadership 
is the man who can do the average thing when everybody else is going crazy. Now, there's a lot of that sentiment all throughout history. Kipling's If jumps to mind, you know, keep your head, my son, remember all that. Can you do the average thing when everybody else is going crazy? We've had a very, very loud political and cultural discourse the last few days. I know um, I've kind of eschewed politics on my social media a little bit, especially on Twitter, but I've done a lot of DMing. I've been doing a lot of private messaging and checking in on people I know. It was a rough couple of days for folks uh, on all sides of arguments because it just got so vitriol. I know a lot of people just said, I'm turning off my social media for a couple of days. Can you do the average thing when everyone else is going crazy? We go back to what I started with, with freedom comes responsibility. And too many people don't want to have any responsibility for what they do with their freedom. Can you do the average thing, the bare minimum thing of keeping your own bearing and holding yourself accountable? Are you doing the right things? Are you willing to listen to people who love you or at least you respect who will tell you when you veer outside the rails of what you should be doing? The reason that's got to start with you is we do a lot of caterwauling and hollering about our communities and our elected officials and our Congress and our government and our political leaders and our media and our social media and da 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 right on down the list. But if you can't hold yourself accountable, if you can't be the average person who can hold their head and hold their bearing when everybody else is losing theirs, if you can do the average thing when everybody else is going crazy, why are we demanding it of everybody else? We forget this is a representational government, and a lot of people want to say, well, this happened, this happened, this happened. That's fine. By and large, we get the government we deserve, and we've done a lot of neglecting of holding anybody accountable at any level of government. It's not something that happened overnight. It happened over many, many years and many, many events, not just the ones that are dominating the headlines now. But the result, things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. We'll be talking about that on the show today. The sequence of events that got us here. If you go down to the core of it, if you want to know where the flood of bad news is always coming from, start with accountability. When your government doesn't have it, your media doesn't have it, when our communities don't have it, when our schools and our police don't have it, and when we don't have it in our own homes and our own families and our own relationships, this is what it looks like. How do we fix it? Start right there. More Hurtel right after this. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Okay, one of our founding principles is nothing ever happens in a vacuum. It happens in a sequence. It's one of the ways we use to turn down the noise of the news cycle is understanding things don't just happen just because they pop up on your timeline. The sequence of events. Our good friend, uh, Eric Garcia, reporter for The Independent, uh, contributor MSNBC, a couple other places. He's on the show frequently. In fact, we're hoping to get him on soon. He's got a little project coming out that we're going to be happy to talk to him about. Great reporter, covers Congress. But he did something on Twitter where he just listed off some of the things that got us to the Supreme Court. And everybody's mad about the Supreme Court. Progressives are mad that the Supreme Court has taken on a conservative tent and it has done things like on just in the last few days, uh, gun rights and, of course, the Dobbs decision uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. But the Supreme Court didn't get that way overnight. It was a long process. And these are just not in any particular order, but they're all points of reference for how we got to where we got to. So everybody's screaming about how the Supreme Court got the way it is. Listen to some of these things. Our good friend, uh, Eric Garcia on the Twitter, Eric M. Garcia, make sure you're following him. We hope to have him on the show again, but here's some of the events from his Twitter thread. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor steps down. Remember she had uh, health problems towards the end of her life and has since passed away. George Bush initially nominated John Roberts, but judge, Justice Rehnquist, who was the chief justice, died, so Bush nominated Roberts to get bumped up to chief justice and then nominated Harriet Myers, which got pushed back from just about everybody. He withdrew that nomination or didn't do it, depending on which version of the story you believe, and that's how you got Justice Alito. Uh, also, back in 2014, the Republicans took the majority of Congress back. Uh, Anthony Scalia, longtime conservative justice, uh, surprisingly died while on a hunting trip uh, of natural causes. Uh, McConnell decides to block any potential nominee. Uh, that's the Merrick Garland thing, who's now the current attorney general. But remember, uh, Barack Obama had uh, nominated him in the end of his presidency, and Mitch McConnell held it up, held that seat. Trump wins. And that's how you get Gorsuch. That's how you get Butt Gorsuch. And that's how Justice Gorsuch got on the Supreme Court. Um, McConnell decides not to pull Kavanaugh's nomination. Now, we're not going to rehash the whole Kavanaugh thing, but they easily could have swapped him out for somebody else. They didn't. They pushed it through. Uh, Joe Manchin and Susan Collins, two critical swing votes in the Senate, pushed the nomination, Kavanaugh nomination over the top. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, dies. Of course, that sets in motion for McConnell to push through the Amy Coney Barrett nomination by President Trump, and that's how she gets on the Supreme Court. This swings the Supreme Court. There are little odds and ends here, too. This is Eric Michael Garcia doing a little Twitter thread. Interesting points to remember how we got here. Joe Biden's handling of the Thomas hearings. Uh, Anita Hill was part of that, but even before that, um, Joe Biden personal crusade to try to keep Clarence Thomas off the Supreme Court. Just go back and watch the clips. That has a lot. Now, that didn't happen in a vacuum either. People have short memories. To really understand why that hearing got so ugly, you've got to go back in time and check out a couple other things. And really, you need to go back, if you really want to know what's really going on in the Supreme Court now, go all the way back to the Bork hearings. And the reason that Bork got torpedoed was because of his involvement in the Watergate stuff. All this stuff goes together. You just got to go back through it. Uh, back to Eric Michael Garcia. Democrats' refusal to force Republicans to nuke the filibuster. That's a little wishful thinking on the Democrats' part. But remember, Harry Reid nuking the filibuster for judges, but not for justices. 
And then McConnell came back over the top and got rid of it for justices. And of course, the one that was all over social media again yesterday, I think it's unfair, but it is what it is. Ruth Bader Ginsburg refusing to retire. There was an interesting tweet. I forget who said it or I would credit it, but it's interesting to watch how Ruth Bader Ginsburg RBG is such an icon until this decision happened. And then a bunch of people turned and dumped invective all over her again. Interesting how you can be an icon and have agency until somebody doesn't get their way. And then you're the problem all of a sudden. In other words, folks, keep your bearings. And remember, there's a lot of historical context to everything we see happening. It happens in a sequence. Great context from our friend Eric Michael Garcia there. More hotel records. Okay, he's our election expert because he's an expert in elections, and he's self-made, did it that way. Part of our friends over at elections-daily.com, along with uh, some other folks over there that we see frequently on the program. Joe Zemanski, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing very well. It's a rainy day here in central Pennsylvania, but I'm doing very well today, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. Does that have anything to do with the uh, poll numbers that are now out about the races, especially for governor and senator in Pennsylvania? Because those look a little grim and gloomy if you're the GOP, don't they? They do right now. But, you know, I think as we've lived and learned from not only the 2020 elections, but from Virginia in 2021, you don't really see those polls uh, kind of materialize what people are feeling until August when these campaigns really ramp up. So, you know, these early summer polls, you know, they're a good data point, but taken with a grain of salt for right now, August is when you really start to see the numbers start piling up. Now, I'll push on that one just for the point of discussion. The, the pushback on that one is Glenn Youngkin was relatively unknown uh, outside of Virginia, in Virginia, probably relatively unknown. He built his brand and identity through that race and won that race. That's not what we got in the Senate here. We got Oz, who has all kinds of negatives and a well-established background, so the opinions on him are kind of baked into the cake. You've done this a while. You do the numbers. Does he have movement numbers in the poll to make up? This looks like it's going to be a, a two- to five-point race somewhere in there all the way around back and forth. Does he have movement in the polls to get those kind of numbers? I think, he, you know, the, the thing with Oz is that he just got to get his approvals with our Republicans up. You know, obviously it was a very, very long and Harvey, hard and heavy primary uh, in Pennsylvania for that Senate race. Obviously, he took a lot of hits, not only from Team McCormick, but from uh, Team Barnett that he was not, and especially from Team Barnett, that he was not uh, Republican enough. You know, that was a question that followed him the whole time. And it'll be very interesting to see, you know, kind of how that develops here. But I think that is something he can make up, though, is that fact that he can still, I think, build uh, that, you know, that back up with Republicans and kind of build up that uh, that approval rating back up there as they kind of meet both candidates. I think, again, that's a, that's what that's what he needs to do. It's not even just a what he could do. This is what this is a what he needs to do type of option. Now, I'll, I'll admit, we all have our biases. We're grown folk talk here on Hertel. I have biases, so I'll just put it out there. Uh, I, I would not vote for him. I don't like the Turkey stuff. I don't like the Erdogan stuff. But I follow a lot of foreign policy. I know about these things. I study those things. The mood in the Republican Party is not towards foreign policy right now. Uh, there's definitely an isolationist tilt, especially in the Trump and MAGA wings of the party. Is that going to hurt him or not? It's a deal breaker for me, but that's my own personal biases. You tell me, is that going to play at all in this fate race for a U.S. Senate seat? 
I think it could. I think it very much depends on how uh, Team Fetterman tries to go after him for it. it like, like you said, didn't really play all that much in the Republican primary. I think in a general election, though, obviously it's a much different atmosphere. It'll be very interesting to see uh, kind of how that atmosphere, that, how that part of his life and how that part will translate into the campaign. Now, the general election where that might be a little bit more uh, upsetting maybe to some swing voters, especially in those potentially in those collar counties, if this is an attack that the Fetterman campaign decides to hone in on. One more quick thing, since you mentioned it, uh, Fetterman had the health scare, went through that. Kind of hard to tell how that a lot of people are like, oh, this is just like, well, no, that, that Fetterman's a different kind of cat to start with. I think there, that would probably be a sympathetic for his base to him. Like, oh, he's overcome this. I, I think it actually kind of humanizes a guy who's kind of, and I don't mean this even in a, in a bad way. He's just kind of a weird dude. He's just different. I think something like the health scare might actually humanize him and help him with voters. But that's my opinion. What do you think? The health scare and coming out, he's up in the polls right now, which he probably should be with some of the built-in things he's going to have. The health scare and his performance going forward, what do you see happening there? You know, it might depend on when we start seeing him on the campaign trail again. You know, if we get, again, if we get, I think August is kind of that big month when we're talking about general election campaigns. If if he's not really back on the campaign trail full-time in August, that's when these questions will start popping up again. You know, obviously, uh, heart health, heart issues are nothing to be, you know, uh, nothing to not be concerned about, that's for sure. Uh, and I think there is potentially an issue him here with the fact that he didn't let anyone know about it. I don't think even people in Harrisburg knew about it. Uh, the fact that because the fact is he was diagnosed with it uh, before he became lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania. So it's something again, it's kind of like the Oz and Turkey thing. It depends on how it is you know, brought on to, and it depends on, you know, kind of how the Oz team then kind of decides to forewarn. Because again, the health issues are something that if they're attacked in the wrong way can certainly backfire very, very quickly. If that's something you decide to attack on, those are something that those are attacks that can backfire very, very quickly. Yeah. And real quick, the governor's race, Mastriano is down a little bit right now. Uh, On paper, this looks like a candidate you normally Excuse me. On paper, this looks like a candidate that is going to be uh, all kinds of problems for the GOP. I think this is them shooting themselves in the foot a little bit on a winnable race. But, you know, last few years have been weird. You never say never. I'm open minded on it. Mastriano, he you know, he's he's not getting trucked or anything. He's down a little bit. But they've also got a thick, thick, thick oppo file on this guy. Did, Did the Republicans blow this one? I think it's very possible. I mean, you know, I've I've uh, always stated my concerns about Mastriano. I just I don't think he's a guy who can moderate. I don't think he's a guy who can move away from what drove him to kind of this fame. And that is uh, in a large part due to him very much pushing uh, the nonsense. That is the idea that there was fraud in the 2020 election. He was a big, big uh, factor in that. You know, and the fact is he he the money game in which is which are big in governor's races, especially in governor's races. That's key. He this is a guy who's going to get romped by Shapiro and not by just, you know, the Clinton Trump numbers where that doesn't really matter, especially in presidential elections, because there's kind of a a peak where money matters in presidential elections. But in governor elections, money matters a lot when you've got a guy who has 13 and a half million in hand. Uh, for Josh Pierre and a guy who we believe has around 400,000 in hand in Doug Mastriano right now going into the summer months. You know, that's a, that's a legitimate problem, I think, for Republicans. And that's, I think, been an underrated concern is the fact that Mastriano is not a guy who has connections necessarily to raise money right now. And he might not be a guy who the 
uh, Republican Governors Association might want to spend money on, even if it's, you know, about a four, even if polls are showing a four or five point race. He might be a problem that Republican, that, that the RGA does not want to spend money on and not save him in that regard. Yeah. And Pennsylvania, you know this well, there is some major media markets. You got money. If you got a money advantage, you can flood a chunk of the electorate uh, in the fall. Uh, money doesn't usually show up other than the news items until about, you know, August, September. I think he's just going to get buried in bad stuff running up to the end of this. And then that'll be that. And it'll be five to 10 points. Am I wrong there? I think that that is a certainly a very possible option. This is something that I always try and transpire when we're talking about governor's races, that even in wavier elections, governor races have been shown to be uh, kind of like this brick wall towards the waves. They seem to certainly have uh, these governor races certainly seem to have much more focus on local issues. I mean, if you go back to 2018, obviously, federally, Arizona and Texas were very competitive races, but their governor gubernatorial races. Uh, Doug Ducey of Arizona and Greg Abbott of uh, Texas soared to re-elections by over 15 points uh, in both of their races in 2018. You know, beating an incumbent governor or beating a party where the current governor may be retiring but is popular, it's hard to do. Even in wave years, uh, Republicans are learning that in Michigan. I think Democrats are going to learn, uh, you know, they have they learned that in Texas and Arizona in 2018. I think Republicans are going to learn that in Michigan. And I think they're going to learn in a couple other places as well this year that being an incumbent governor is much easier said than done, even in wave year elections. Yep. Uh, let's start running through some of these primaries. Joe Zemanski from Elections-Daily joining us. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've had some notable primaries things. Let's go down to Alabama. Uh, Mo Brooks. <laughs> Bless his little heart, what there is of one. Uh, he got trucked by 30 points in the end. He was endorsed by Trump. He was unendorsed by Trump. Katie Britt on paper is, you know, what you would normally call a, a normal GOP senatorial candidate. She's also young. I think she's, what, mid-40s, late 40s? Only 40. She's only just turned 40, apparently. Oh, my she's- God. I mean, she, she could be in the Senate for 40 years. It, yep. She's that kind of a candidate. But then Trump got involved. It looks like it shook itself out the way we kind of started. And Mo Brooks is now saying he's going to end his political career. I'll believe that when I see it. But anyway, just real quick on that one, because Trump got involved, people were watching it. We had the the circus around it. Uh, Talk a little Alabama real quick. Also, Governor Kay Ivey and all that mess. Well, yeah, I mean, Alabama was probably maybe the most roller coaster GOP Senate primary yet in terms of kind of the outside influences on it. Obviously, Donald Trump uh, originally endorsed Mo Brooks very, very early on in this race. It was a very early nomination, one of the uh, endorsement, excuse me, one of his first. Actually, this was basically a reward to Brooks, basically, because, again, Brooks was one of the frontliners uh, in Congress with the nonsense around the 2020 election again and again, the uh, pushing of the belief that there was voter fraud in some way. You know, if you look at that, you know, Brooks was the first was the guy behind that. And Trump decided to award him with a very early endorsement that did not stop. However, Katie Britt, who was backed by Richard Shelby, she was Richard Shelby's former chief of staff. This is Richard Shelby. She, he, he's a very influential and popular guy in Alabama pro, uh, politics. I never counted him out. And Brooks has already, as always, had questions around him campaign-wise. He comes from Huntsville, which has an elected, a, which the uh, Alabama has an elected a statewide official from Huntsville or that northern part of the state since nineteen since the nineteen seventies. So there's kind of been this curse around the Huntsville area since then that because it's kind of this lesser populated area, it doesn't necessarily culturally mesh in with the other parts of the state. 
uh, that those candidates from there have issues uh, reaching out to the broader and wider base uh, away from the area. And Brooks, I think, certainly dealt with that. Obviously, he was unendorsed by Trump as his polling numbers continue to flounder, even with the Trump endorsement. Trump unendorsed him, kind of gave some nonsense reasoning for it. Again, that was mostly surrounding the 2020 stuff. But uh, Trump endorsed Katie Britt about a week before uh, this recent runoff. Britt was already up pretty heavily in the polls. All it did was basically confirm that uh, Britt was going to be the nominee at this point. And obviously, Tuesday night happened. Pretty easy victory for Britt, as we expected. It was called pretty early on in the night for that runoff. And uh, Mo Brooks, as as you said, we'll see if he, if he sticks to it, but he is in his mid-60s at this point. It sounds like Brooks is going to be taking a uh, forever break from politics right now, and he seems to be retiring uh, within Huntsville to from politics for a good period of time. There's something with Mo Brooks I can get behind and endorse. May he may he enjoy his grandchildren outside of elective office, and God bless him doing so because it's time to go, Mo. Bye-bye. Uh, our good friend Joe Zemanski from elections-daily.com. We're going to run through a bunch more of these primaries. We're also going to look at we got some real big-ticket ones coming up. Arizona's going to be an absolute uh, gang fight out there. A couple other ones. Joe Zemanski, Elections Daily, our good friend and election expert. Right after this, Hurtel continues. Welcome back to her tell Joe Zumanski, our good friend, elections-daily.com. If you have not found their website yet, a bunch of folks that said, hey, we can cover elections better than we've seen. They've went out and done it. They're big time now. They're combined and partnered with Decision Desk. Make sure you're following. They also do live streams on elections night that are always entertaining. Good folks, make sure you're following them. You can see his social media there on the lower third graphic. All right, buddy, let's talk through a couple of real quick ones. Um, a race that not a lot of national coverage, but you know it because you're there because you're one of these uh, seemingly endless string of uh, uh, George Mason grads that we've got to deal with on the program. Virginia, um, there was a House uh, runoff election, didn't get a lot of national coverage, but it's kind of tied into Glenn Youngkin. It's almost like the bookend of the Glenn Youngkin story. Just walk people through that real quick for him. Yeah, so obviously Virginia had uh, they their last remaining uh, House primaries on Tuesday night. Uh, the thing with Virginia is that uh, 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 congressional committees, basically the district committees, can choose whether or not still whether they want to hold a primary, whether they want to hold a convention. Uh, in Republicans, a convention method is still very popular in some regards. Uh, the Northern Virginia-based districts, the 11th the 8th and the 10th all held conventions, as well as in the 5th Congressional District. And with that, uh, because there were no there were no competition for the 3rd um, uh, and with, excuse me, for the 9th and the 4th Congressional District, that left only uh, four contested primaries on uh, Tuesday night, uh, the 6th, the 3rd, the 2nd, and the 7th, in terms of Republicans. And Democrats actually had no contested primaries. They had no big primaries this year. Uh, Don Byer did get a, pr a primary challenge this year, but did not end up doing anything. He won in a 78 to 22 uh, re-election bid. But Republican side had more interesting. They had two key races, of course, in those two key seats, the second and the seventh. Uh, these are going to be two. Con uh, these are going to be two very key congressional races in Virginia in 2022. The second is a Biden plus two seat based around uh, Virginia Beach City, while the seventh is a Biden plus seven seat based around uh, Nova exurbs and suburbs, uh, mainly in Stafford and Spotsylvania counties and then going out to some parts of Central Virginia. 
So it's a uh, it's two very interesting seats. All right, real quick, let's get to some important ones that we haven't touched on because we haven't had you in a couple of weeks because you're this busy guy doing all this fancy stuff now. <laughs> South Carolina, you know, again a race that Trump heavily got himself involved in, got a split decision. Uh, he clipped off one of his vengeance rod lists, uh, Tom Rice. But Nancy Mace came back. Uh, she's kind of a unique personality in the Republican Party. Trump came out against her. She survived it. Uh, that sure seems like maybe, and she's another one, she's young. This sure seems like something that probably sets her up for a pretty successful career going forward if she handles it well, because that's a pretty tough acid test for an early part of a GOP congressional career, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, uh, obviously, well, so of course, uh, as you mentioned, he did get a split decision. Uh, Tom Rice in the 7th District actually got beaten uh, without the need for a runoff by Russell Fry. Fry got 51 percent of the vote. So he avoided the runoff there against Rice, who was in second place. Uh, so Fry will be the the congressman in almost certainty in this uh, about Trump plus seven, uh, 18 seat uh, come 2022. He does get rid of one of his impeachment votes. However, Mace was a bit of a different story. Uh, Mace uh, did not vote for impeachment, but she was pretty heavily critical of Trump uh, post January 6th. She did not vote to overturn, uh, try and overturn the results in any of the states that came up uh, in the House. You know, so this was a key race. She was uh, going against Katie Arrington. She was the former candidate in the first district in 2018. She was the one who lost to Joe Cunningham in that seat. Uh, Trump endorsed Arrington. Uh, but really what it came down to was that Mace had a pretty overwhelming margin in Charleston County, which is our home base. She won that about 62 to 37. And then she also won uh, Buford, as, as we dealt with multiple times on the, um, uh, on the show that night, the issues of making sure which, which way to pronounce the, that, that Buford County in South Carolina, which is a county just south of uh, Charleston. It was another pretty heavily populated part of the district. Mace won that about by a margin that she won the race by about 54, 46 uh, over Arrington. And that's really what kind of drove her to victory. You know, and that is going to be a big thing. And obviously, Tim Scott is a name that we're, we've heard a lot over the last couple of years. He's confirmed no matter what that 2022 will be his last go around. Uh, you know, if makes it someone who's still around, you know, if Scott becomes someone's vice presidential nominee or if he becomes or if he just up and retires in 2028, you know, makes it someone who's certainly coming from that Charleston area and that coastal area could certainly potentially become uh, North uh, South Carolina's next senator and first female senator. It's definitely a possibility now. Uh, it doesn't seem like Trump seems interested in going after a post this year. He actually, one of the few ones who's, who he's endorsing against, who he congratulated on his new true social site in the post-race of that election there. So it doesn't seem like there's going to be energy from Trump world to go after or past this point. So we're very interested to kind of see what continues to go on after this. I got the answer for that one because South Carolina is, how you doing, President Joe Biden? Really, really, really important if you want to be president. You basically have to win South Carolina for either party. It's probably the one state that both parties have it, probably one, two, or three on the thing. You don't want to take off the South Carolina voters if you have any aspirations, whatever, in 2024. That's what that was about. And even Trump, who can really go off the handle and not do very good strategically-wise, even he <laughs> realized, like, okay, she, we better not tick off her voting base if we want anything to happen in the state of South Carolina. Speaking of which, by the way, uh, the governor's race, you mentioned Joe Cunningham. It looks like it's going to be him and Henry McMasters. How's that going to shake out? 
You know, you know, South Carolina is a state that is, you know, just because of the way its population and its voting base work, it's a relatively inelastic state. This is a state that's gone around between like 10 to 13 points towards Republicans in recent years. It's pretty much stabilized at that point. It's one of those inelastic states, and that's a word that's tad overused, but I think it actually describes South Carolina statewide pretty good. Uh, we, we doubt that McMaster will have any issue here. Cunningham obviously may have some slight bigger appeal when maybe another candidate would in that coastal area of the suburbs that might knock down the margin a point or two, but this is still a red wave year. McMaster's not an unpopular governor by any stretch of the word. Uh, you know, I think this will be a pretty quick, vic- a pretty solid victory for McMaster, I think is the right way to put it. That's for sure. Uh, as we kind of get into that race here, when it comes down to it, it's not really a race that we're going to be keeping an eye on at this point. Let's project ahead a little bit. Uh, there's other states, of course, and we'll talk about them in due course. I want to talk about Arizona, August 2nd. Uh, this is going to be all sorts of ugly. It's getting, you thought it would maybe ease up a little bit. It actually seems to be, the, the stupid seems to be accelerating in these races. Uh, there's, of course, the Senate race. There's the governor race. And we know what's going on inside of Arizona. It's been ground zero for all the election nonsense, mess, and conspiracy theories. We've got active investigations going on. We've got lawsuits going on. It is a big old hot mess. And you've got some really questionable candidates who may actually win some nominations here. How do we parse out Arizona? Because this looks like a dumpster fire from a distance. You know, a dumpster fire is probably the best way to describe Arizona, quite honestly. You know, uh, the Arizona Republican Party, just because of the way it is and how we look at it, uh, has been kind of become a mess over the last couple of years. Uh, You know, Kelly Ward, a former Firebrand state senator who took on, who was trying to primary John McCain in 2016, took over the party apparatus as chairwoman in 2018. Uh, it has kind of been a downhill slide since then. Can you repeat uh, that real quick? Because people told me, well, they're just giving her a state seat to get her to be quiet and go away. I'm like, no, that really matters. So I hate to say I told you so, but when that happened, I you can go go check my Twitter feed. I got pushback. People are like, no, 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 they're giving her that to get her to shut up and go away quietly and placate her. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is bad. This, you're going to burn the whole party down letting her in charge of that. I feel vindicated there, buddy. Yeah, no, I mean, that's absolutely the case. You know, state party apparatuses are incredibly important, especially when the nationwide party apparatus is not seem interested in getting involved in these races. Statewide party apparatuses are important and Ward is a nut job and she is kind of what the cuckoos take over the hen house. So, you know, it has become a big issue here as a public as a, the Arizona Republican Party seems more attached to the fringes as Arizona has become a purplish state. That's become a real issue. That's for sure. And, you know, you're looking at it here that it's going to be very, very interesting to see kind of how we go here. Obviously, uh, Kari Lake and technically Blake Masters, even though the endorsement he got from President Trump was more of a Mark Burnovich slapdown than uh, a true endorsement of Masters. If you really look at that uh, statement he put up, a Kari Lake is obviously the danger candidate here, uh, really from that governor's race, Karen Taylor Robin Robeson. Uh, a, a businesswoman from the area, from the Maricopa area, is her main challenger at this point. This is a race that's gotten really, really nasty uh, in the last month in that governor's primary between these two women. Uh, now, uh, Lake is actually being hit hard here as kind of this, uh, the issue around uh, gay, uh, gay rights and this specifically transgender uh, individuals has really come up again, especially as we've seen uh, issues with drag queens and kind of their role uh, yeah, that some people have brought them up in society. That's for sure. Uh, understandable pushback. I think that's for sure. But, uh, you know, you're kind of looking at it here 
And uh, there is a recent attack that Lake has been uh, friends with a very well-known Arizona drag queen back when she was a newscaster. And uh, these photos and these Instagram posts of uh, Lake basically praising her have uh, come up now as an attack. And apparently there's been some slight on the ground rumors that it's working. Uh, obviously, the attacks against Lake is that she is a fraud and uh, obviously someone who voted for Obama in 2012, donated to Obama in 2012. Uh, there are even signs up in Arizona that uh, put Kari Lake next to President Obama's face and say, I voted for Obama in 2012. And, you know, that we'll see if that attack works in Arizona. Be very, this is a race that's just going to be very, very interesting to see kind of how this all pulls out in about a month and a half on August 2nd. And, you know, like I like we said, this is this is a race that still has time to develop because that's just how it's going to be in this race is the race has a lot of money in it and there's going to be a lot of time for this race to still kind of flesh itself out as we get closer to that august 2nd primary date does does sending u.s senator mark kelly just kind of try to glide above all this and ride this out kind of feels like that's where this is going that's that does kind of feel like this is going and obviously uh kelly who has been a money printer uh in terms of fundraising ever since he got involved uh has the uh, war chest to potentially do so so it'll be very interesting to kind of see how that uh, response is as well when the time comes. All right. Speaking of unsuitable for office, let's go over to the show me state real quick in the time we got going. Roy Blunt, um, of course, is retiring. Uh, that's a big hole in the Republican uh, caucus. We'll talk about that some other time. He's one of those guys didn't get a lot of national push, but he had a lot of pull in the rooms. Uh, so Roy Blunt is retiring. <laughs> Eric Greetings. My Bad. God, where to even start with this? Uh, I can, of all the unsuitable candidates for office, he is absolutely top of the list. Um, I don't trust any of the polling out of Missouri right now because this is such a race with the dynamics, but just talk about it real quick. Well, I think just to parse it out here is that Eric Wrightens is, like you said, very unsuitable for office. This is a guy who has uh, pretty solid accusations of domestic violence against him. This is a guy who also has accusations, what seems to be pretty solid accusations of rape against him. And this is not a, this is a guy who could legitimately, we've talked about this before. We talked about this possibility with Roy Moore in that Alabama 2017 special. This is a guy who could legitimately find himself kicked out of the Senate if he is elected Senator, just based on the potential crimes he has committed. So, you know, Greitens is totally unfit for office. Uh, There is no, been, been no, you know, magical, theoretically magical Trump endorsement here yet. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk, you know, Vicki Hartzler, who's a congressman from Missouri's fourth district and uh, Eric Schmidt, who's the current who is the current attorney general of Missouri, which, as Josh Hawley so showed, uh, seems to be a beneficial stepping stone if you want to become a senator uh, right now. Uh, Greitens has shown to have a very, very slight polling lead right now, usually hovering around 25 percent. There's been a lot of calls of Billy Long. Another Missouri congressman is in right now pulling around 8 percent. There's been a lot of calls for a long to drop out and to endorse one of Hartzler or Schmidt. So that way one of those two can truly grab some momentum, try and jump above Greitens here, but it would be undeniable that he would be someone who could potentially put Missouri in play in a red year and uh, would just be an all around mess for the Republican party. I mean, this guy, this guy's a legitimately bad human being. Uh, what seems to be a legitimately disgusting human being and the recent ad he put out, uh, about rhino hunting and what you know the ri and know the idea of republicans rename only which grinds like so likes to point a lot of fingers at uh, as he uh tried to knock as uh the ad showed him busting down with a shotgun a person's door that uh theoretically could have been a rhino which was a pretty disgusting at all in general so you know like i said this guy's a mess it would be really awful if this guy was a republican uh nominee for a senate seat in missouri this is just a in general a very bad human being 
And uh, I really hope that he collapses here in these uh, upcoming weeks before we get to Missouri's primary. Yeah, real quick, we only got a couple minutes left here, but I want to touch on it. Uh, Florida doesn't have their primary until August 23rd, but we've had a lot of Florida news all of a sudden. Of course, Ron DeSantis is all over the media right now. He's running for reelection. Charlie Crist, who was, you know, a Republican and an independent, now a Democrat, because he, you know, has to be in elected office in some form or fashion in his own mind. Uh, we've seen some polling. We, we saw a poll this past week that I think is a garbage poll that showed Charlie Crist up by a couple of points. I, I don't buy that one for a second. However, uh, a lot of people watching this one with an eye going forward. Uh, so the governor's race, and then, of course, Marco Rubio is also up for re-election against uh, Val Demings. Just those two races real quick in the two minutes or so we got left. Yeah, so uh, Charlie Crist versus Ron Santos kind of seems to be the path we're going down right now. Uh, obviously, the Florida Democratic primary has to go through right now uh, between Crist and uh, current Ag Commissioner Nikki Freed. Uh, but, you know, DeSantis versus Crist, you know, Florida's been a tightly contested state, but Crist has a lot of... Uh, Wins pushing back against him. Uh, Democrats do not seem at all interested in investing in Florida by any means uh, this election cycle, which is going to be a real problem for them. Uh, either Christ or, you know, uh, basically certain uh, Democratic nominee for Senate against Marco Rubio, uh, Val Demings. And again, you have to deal with the Rubio factor. This is a guy who's pretty constantly overperforming the state of Florida. Uh, he seems pretty well set to do it again uh, in 2022, but you know, this is, this is kind of just the way it goes right now. I think the Senate is like we said, we have it rated as likely Republican in that governor's race on election daily. We're pretty decently confident in his, uh, uh, reelection at this point. Obviously it's certainly not a sure thing. Florida is a weird state with weird people. Uh, we, and I love those weird people. That's for sure. They always hold a special place in our heart, but you never know how they're going to act in these elections. But the fact is also that the Senate is a governor who's above water uh, especially in the year that's going for his party, it's uh, pretty rare uh, to see those guys fall off and lose uh, in these type of years. So we're, you know, it's a race that most people, most analysts are pretty decently confident that DeSantis will win re-election this year, uh, even if it's against Christ. Yeah, I think you will. And uh, the, our news media friends seem absolutely committed to trying to make him president. It'll be interesting to watch. I'm talking about the people that oppose him, by the way, who just love the government. <laughs> it's going to be interesting watching that going forward. All right, Joe Zemanski, as always, just a big old information sandwich. You're the man. We appreciate you so much. Let folks know where they can follow Election Daily. You guys, pretty much all your Tuesday nights from now till 2024 are spoken for, so let them know about <laughs> that. And also your social media, my friends, so they can continue to follow you and the other folks over at Elections Daily. Yeah, so you can follow uh, Elections Daily at, at uh, Elections underscore Daily on Twitter. Uh, we also have our YouTube, elect, just Elections Daily on Twitter. Uh, you'll see both on Twitter and YouTube. That's where we stream our Tuesday night election night coverage, as well as our Friday night podcast, uh, Elections Weekly. Uh, that's me, our editor-in-chief, Eric Cunningham, and fellow contributors and uh, head, heads of items, uh, Dylan Wade, uh, Dylan Brown, excuse me, Dylan Brown, and uh, Kraz Grenitz. So uh, catch us there both wise if you're interested in hearing more from not just me and my big mouth, but also uh, uh, more a little bit diverse opinions from our other staff members. Uh, like I said, every Tuesday election night and every Friday and every Friday night, no matter if there's an election or not, you'll see us live for our elections weekly. So uh, catch us on there. Uh, hopefully you can also catch me personally on my personal Twitter at Joseph Samansky. That's S-C-Y. M-A-N-S-K-I. And it's always a it's always a pleasure to come on to her tell and talk to you, Andrew. Yeah, and those three guys, it's not quite left, right, center ideologically, but it's pretty darn close. Very balanced. Uh, you know, they got progressive views, they got some conservative views, a lot of down the middle information they hash out. It's a good program. Good folks, make sure to check it out. 
Joe Zemanski, always appreciate it. We're going to have you a very busy boy on the show the next couple of years, my friend, because you do great work. Appreciate you. I appreciate you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Take care, sir. Tell a horrific story out of a place that I love dearly, San Antonio, Texas. Spent a lot of time there um, during my military days. The schoolhouse for my career field was in San Antonio, so I went down there frequently. Uh, it gets hot in San Antonio, really hot. Um, and this is just tragic. Uh, KSAT, 46 people were found dead in a tractor trailer on the southwest side, and 16 have been transported to area hospitals. Uh, San Antonio police and fire officials, it's tragic, said Mayor Ron Nirenberg. These are families that were likely trying to find a better life. It's nothing short of horrific. Authorities say it is the largest mass casualty event they've ever seen in San Antonio. Quote, we hope those responsible will be put through such inhumane conditions are prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. Officials would not immediately confirm if the victims were migrant or what countries they're from, but it's a good bet piled in the back of the truck that they were. I'm sure there was uh, illegality involved here. San Antonio Police Chief William McManus said the officers received a call about six minutes, 10 minutes before 6 p.m. Monday. When workers approached, he saw several bodies inside an 18 wheel tractor trailer with its doors partially open. Crews with the San Antonio Fire arrived to find, quote, stacks of bodies. Hood said 46 people were pronounced dead at the scene. That includes range from young teens to young adults, um, men and women uh, and elderly. He said they died from heat stroke. The trailer had no air conditioning and no water. Temperatures had reached more than 100 degrees on Monday. And we know proportionally in a sealed metal trailer, you can add another 40, 30, 40 degrees to that. It would have been just awful. The Mexican Secretary of External Relations tweeted Monday night that the 46 people died of asphyxiation, and at least two of the people were from Guatemala, so they were obviously moving. Uh, first responders helped 16 people, 12 adults, and four minors, God help us, out of the trailer. Uh, shockingly bad story. I hope the criminal elements involved here are prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Uh, it's a quick reminder that uh, there are people who are desperate to do desperate things like leave their country and get into America. There's a large debate for immigration that we've all set to side with other issues going on. You need to remember there's always desperate people out there doing things like this and just yelling about it being illegal isn't enough because the human side of this, I don't care who you are. 46 bodies is horrific. Uh, God bless the victims. And I hope they get some justice of some kind to the people that did this to them. More hotel right after this. I heard uh, Scott's to the rescue in our last segment. You know, we always try to do some little uplifts, and this one's a great one from uh, BBC. Amanda and Paul Reisel arrived the night before their big day with only their wedding rings and flowers after their flight was diverted and delayed. Sky wedding photographer Rosie Woodhouse took to social media to ask Islanders for help by the next morning. They had provided a dress and a kilt. Amanda, who had been ready to give up and go home, said Rosie and the community of Sky saved the day she said our perfect 
imperfect wedding is only possible because of Rosie and the wonderful folks of Sky. Faith had a hand in our happy day because local Broadford primary dinner lady Teresa was the owner of my dress, and I'm also a dinner lady back home. Wearing it must mean I know it came from someone who loves and feeds her students just like I do. A dinner lady, that's like, uh, you know, lunch lady for a school lunch lady, school cook. Really cool thing. Problems started for the couple from Orlando, Florida, when their flight to the UK was diverted to Philadelphia. Um, it's gotten a little better over the years, but Philadelphia used to be just a horrid airport. Uh, it's just somebody's flown a lot telling you that. This then led to a series of knock-on delays in their 4,000-mile journey that included stops in Heathrow and Inverness, Scotland. The couple ended up spending a total of three days stuck in airports, and their luggage disappeared along the way. Paul said all of us have breakdowns. It was delay, delay, delay. They eventually arrived on the Isle of Skye about 2,300 on Monday night. That's 11 o'clock for those of you from Logan. The night before the wedding, the photographer tried to salvage the occasion. She said, I told him we could make this work. Sky is an amazing place. She posted an appeal on the Sky social media site, and by 7.30 on Tuesday, she had been flooded with offers. We had a full kilt set for Paul and a beautiful wedding dress for Amanda. The pictures are stunning. This is a truly amazing uh, piece of geography out there on the island of Sky. You just got to look at it. Um, though their schedule had been changed slightly, the couple's humanist ceremony when smoothly, every single person Rosie introduces to and that offer to help will forever have a place in our hearts. The people of Sky will be famous in Orlando because we will tell anyone who will listen that the reason our love was cemented in that perfectly imperfect wedding day. Uh, hit the link up in the show notes. The pictures are amazing and good on the people of Sky, the Scots, and everybody else involved. Good little story to end on a busy day here on Hertel, and that'll do it. Uh, show at gmail.com, show at the Twitter. If you want to follow us, make sure you're subscribed and following us on whatever platform you're listening to, whether it's YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Big Talker Radio, our networking partner. Make sure you're following them. Their app is fantastic. Lots of good stuff on there, including live music. Uh, make sure you're downloading their app so you can listen and even watch Heard Tell Show right there. So until we see you again, wherever you are across the street around the world, whether you're up yonder or over yonder, like the folks in the ILS guy getting married, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. I'll talk to you tomorrow for more Heard Tell. All the music on Heard Tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.